This podcast and its content are designed and intended to provide a place for conversation. Topics and advice covered in this podcast should not be taken as professional medical advice or emotional or spiritual counsel. If you or a loved one need professional help, they should seek a licensed professional. The views covered and discussed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of WCSG Radio or Cornerstone University. Ideas presented are not necessarily endorsed by WCSG Radio or Cornerstone University. Welcome to Through Rough Waters, a biblically-based mental health podcast presented by WCSG and supported by West Michigan Wellness Group. I'm your host, Zach Allen, and joining me is my co-host, Kevin DeCam. Kevin, how are you today? So good, Zach. And also joining us today, Reverend Dr. Brian Smilda. Brian is a graduate of Western Theological Seminary and Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. His dissertation, that's a smart word, was on the spiritual healing of traumatic events. Welcome, Brian. Hey, Zach. Thanks for letting me join you today. Yeah. So, Brian, I understand you're a little different than some of the other counselors at West Michigan Wellness Group. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that and your role there? Sure. So, um, everyone else at West Michigan Wellness Group are licensed professional counselors, and I am not. I am a pastor. I've been an ordained minister in the Reformed Church in America for 24 years. Um, Along with that, I did my dissertation, like you said, in the spiritual healing of trauma. And I did that because I was on my own recovery from my own personal traumatic experiences as a child. And this began about eight years ago. And uh, so my wife and I went to see some counselors at a counseling retreat center in Georgia. And that was the first time I faced my own childhood traumatic issues, uh, which included um, sexual abuse. And so as a result of that, I learned a whole lot more of, you know, how I got wounded and the imprint of that on me and how um, all the outcomes in my thinking, my behaving, my feeling. Um, So then as I got healthy and as I experienced God healing and redeeming me, I started um, teaching classes and having one-on-one sessions with people in my church. And those people started experiencing freedom and and, um, wholeness and and new life. And so um, I I began doing more and more in that area. I began uh, some training programs in the area of trauma healing. Um, and then Kevin invited me to join him on the team. So I'm considered a pastoral counselor because I, I bring my, my pastoral background along with biblical studies, theological studies in, into the, the way I, I bring counseling to people. So yeah, I, I work with a variety of people um, just because I'm a pastoral counselor. Like I don't only do pastors, I, but I do have a number of clients who are pastors who I can empathize and understand where they're coming from because I've been there, done that and helping them process their, their experiences but then I also, um, you know, because of a trauma background, people who have some kind of identified trauma, whether it's sexual abuse or spiritual abuse or emotional abuse, you know, I'm able to work with them and help them discover uh, the healing and, and redeeming work of Jesus Christ. So that's how I'm a little bit different. Um, I'm not, I don't have a licensed professional counseling, you know, certification, uh, but I have the the life credentialing of pain and more importantly, the healing work of Jesus. Yeah. Thanks for sharing a little bit of your story, and we're really excited to have you here as we continue this series on family conflict. Today, we're going to look at what's called family wounds. You might have heard the terms uh, the mother wound or the father wound. We're going to unpack what those can look like in addition to some other wounding from our family system and how we can begin to process and heal. Uh, There's a lot to unpack around this topic, but let's start with the basics. Anyone who grew up in the church learned about the Ten Commandments, and one of those commandments talks about the relationship between parents and children. Now, Paul, when he talks about the Fifth Commandment in Ephesians, expands on it a little bit. This is Ephesians 6, verses 1 and 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. There's a lot there. So let's unpack this with an emphasis on what this command from God means when maybe your story is a little bit like mine. You have a parent, my dad in my case, who's not very easy to quote unquote honor. What does it mean to honor your father and mother? And like verse four says, what does it mean to not provoke your children to anger? How are those two statements related? So when I read commands like that, I start to get curious and wonder what's going on underneath some things. And, you know, um, why is a parent, a mother or a father, provoking their child to anger? Uh, other English translations are, do not exasperate your children. Mm. Um, so what's, That's the one I heard growing up. Yeah. Uh, so what's going on 
that a parent is exasperating their children. And often it's because they, as a parent, are also wounded. That something's gone on in their life that has been painful and it's unresolved and perhaps they've hidden it or avoided it for a long time. And, but it comes out, it comes out in other ways. And so then, you know, they're easily exasperated on their children or easily provoking them to anger. Um, you know, it, it, it's the classic story where, you know, somebody goes to work and the boss is really mean and critical. And so he comes home and he can't respond to his boss. So he yells at his wife and the wife yells at the kid and the kid gets the dog and then the dog bites the dad, you know, like, so the dog didn't do anything wrong, but, but the, 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 the person in the story has a wound from the, the boss and for some reason couldn't address it there or process it there. And it comes out what we call sideways. It comes out in other relationships. So, you know, why as parents do we exasperate our kids? Why do we provoke them to anger? Um, well, I get curious, what's going on inside of me? Why am I easily exasperated? Why is their behavior frustrating me? Um, why can't I allow a four-year-old to just be curious and, and to be playful and adventurous and try to learn? Um, why am I easily aggravated by that? And then I jump on them. Um, so that, that, so that, that's an, an area I go, at least on, on that commandment side. And we can get to the honor in a moment as well. But Kevin, do you have any thoughts on, on that side of the, the command as, about don't exasperate your kids? No, I, I love that. And to be transparent here, after some of after we recorded our um, series on anxiety and looking at reactions within kids across different age groups, one of the things Brian said to me in the office was, well, at what point are we going to talk about the parents? And, and I think that's really important. I hope this sort of allows for a segue into that, right? Because yes, we can look at what's going on with our kiddos and we can look at why that might be and how to help them and how to respond. Mm -hmm. I also think as parents, one of the most important things that we can do, and this is central to the work that Brian helps people do as well as others within the office is why don't we take a look at what's going on within you, mm -hmm. right? Is something going on within you, like you said, that um, helps make sense of the way you're reacting towards your child? Is your child actually even feeding off of your anxiety or reaction or, or trouble? I mean, kids, Kids tend to serve, um, especially certain ones that are highly attuned. Uh, I sometimes talk about as as the the fire alarm kids or the smoke detector kids, right? The canaries in the mine shaft. Although that's a morbid analogy, I think if you understand. <laughs> um, but but sometimes our kids' behavior is actually indicating some problem within the system that we don't know they know about, or maybe they are not even consciously aware of, but are responding to. And so, I, yeah, I think one of the the healthiest things that we can do is step back and say, what's going on within me? Where does this come from within me? What do I need to take a look at in terms of why this thing is coming out of me, why this response is coming out of me, or, or why is this response warranted in this situation? Yeah. And, and another phrase I have for this is what are your 10 and two reactions? You know, why am I responding at a level 10 to a level two situation? You know, a four-year-old who's left toys on the floor. They're four years old. No, you know, not a 10. Yeah. Why am I responding at a level 10? Because there is an answer, right? We, we only do things that we believe make sense at some level, but we may not be consciously aware of what that is. So yeah, I've, I've used the same thing, right? Of, of there, there needs to be an explanation for the gap between what it is that, you know, the stimulus, stimulus and response. Why did my response not match that stimulus? There is an answer if we're willing to explore it. Right. But usually we have to do some deeper work and it looks at um, some deeper things going on within me, um, how I've been wounded, the imprint of that wound in terms of how I think, feel, behave. Um, and then I bring that out as a parent. Oh, but that's hard. So I'm just going to yell at my kid instead. <laughs> it is easier. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, and, and that then, was a confession. <laughs> and then 20 years from now, uh, our kids will be in therapy. Yeah, yeah. yeah and we get to pay for it for them. Yeah, absolutely. It all comes around. Uh, but then on the honor side, you know, I, I get curious, like, what do we mean by honor our father and mother? And um, what about when our parents have done things that have been really harmful or hurtful? Um, what does it mean to honor? And, and one of the things that I've encountered in the church as a pastor is this idea among Christians that you can't, quote unquote, throw your parents under the bus. And if you reveal any family secret, you're throwing them under the bus. If my dad was embezzling from his employer, which my dad wasn't, he threw himself under the bus. If, if I talk about it with someone, I'm not throwing my dad under the bus. He threw himself under the bus. Mm -hmm. and, and so it's not dishonoring to my dad to speak truth about him. If he did, in fact, 
embezzle from his employer, and I tell the truth about that, I am honoring him. It is not dishonoring him. He dishonored himself by embezzling from his employer. Yeah. And he there's threw a himself heart, under the bus. There's a heart posture there that's important also to take a look at, right? And we may need help looking at it because I, I, I would agree hundred percent, but some people listening might think, well, wait a minute. That means I just get to go talk about, well, what you're saying is, uh, it doesn't say that you can't, but why you would be doing that depends on the posture of your heart, right? right. Are you doing it in order to bring into light that which is in darkness in order to honor him and help him work through that. Because like you said, sometimes the old family narrative says, no, we have to keep all those secrets in the dark. Well, that's not honoring because it's right. not healthy. No. And, and again, that doesn't mean we have to post it on M live. You know, we don't have to tell everybody everything, right. but we also don't have to go to the other extreme and tell nobody nothing. Right. Sometimes we just need to tell somebody something. Yeah. And, and maybe that somebody is a, is a therapist or a best friend or a spouse um, so yeah, I'm not talking about broadcasting all, you know, all of our dirty laundry, but we don't have to hide it either. And if I can use an example, I, I alluded to it a little bit before, like my father has um, made a lot of poor decisions in his life. And one of the ways that I have chosen to quote unquote honor my father is by removing him from my life. Like he's in a situation where he made a bunch of poor decisions and these poor decisions were compounded by years and years of manipulation and like lies. And when I realized that he was using me to foster this manipulation, the only way I could think of to help him heal was to stop contributing to that. So honor your father and mother does not mean worship your father and mother. Like those are two different words. Right. Exactly. And, and sometimes in, in, when there's a lot of dysfunction in, in a parent, uh, going no contact as a child is the best way of honoring them. Um, and, and you know, Zach, thanks for sharing that because that, that, that sounds very painful to go no contact with a parent because that's not the ideal of what God desires right. for us, but sometimes it becomes our reality mm -hmm. uh, for the safety of, of ourselves and, and for the parent. Um, but yeah, when, when a child makes a decision to go no contact, um, it, it comes from a, 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 a place of pain. So as we move into kind of the meat of this episode, we've talked about it a couple of times. This episode, we're going to talk about family wounds. And I mentioned the terms earlier, like the mother wound and the father wound. Maybe you've heard those, maybe you haven't. But um, one of the reasons, Brian, that you're here with us is you are an expert in processing this trauma that family wounds can bring. Can you maybe give us a couple examples of what a family wound might look like if someone's not familiar with this terminology? Sure. Yeah. And, and so we get wounded in a variety of different ways. So one, one type of wounding is what we call uh, wounds of withholding, where the good things that I need as a child, I don't receive. So what are the good things that I need that I don't receive? These are things like love, acceptance, worth, security, understanding, purpose. Um, it, it's having those sorts of deeper needs met. It, it's having parents who are um, attentive to who I am. Uh, attuned to me, attached to me. Um, and when I don't receive those as a child and I'm five, eight, 10, I don't know what I really need. And I don't know that I'm not ge getting it. I just know that I'm empty. Mm -hmm. And then I go looking. And, and probably at a conscious level, Brian, I don't even know that until maybe later. Right, I, right. Exactly. Yeah. So, so that's where this stuff can be difficult. That's why we tend to pay attention, especially to what happens in those early years, because not only don't I know what I need and I may not know that I'm not getting it. I don't even understand how that's impacting me because right. I, I'm probably not consciously aware of all of that complexity just yet. Yeah. And, and so when things are withheld from us, uh, that leaves us empty and searching and so that also makes us vulnerable and open to other people who can do the second type of wounds, which we would call wounds of aggression, where you receive something that you don't need. So in my case, um, I ended up uh, getting a job working for a, a janitor of my school, and he sexually abused me. So he gave me something I didn't need, sexual abuse. So um, I was empty and searching, wounds of withholding, and I went looking, and then I got wounds of aggression. And so, um, again, this is all happening when I'm like 10, 12 years old, 
and it's before you know our brains are fully mature and developed, uh, before our prefrontal cortex is really working, before even our hippocampus is working. And the hippocampus is what helps us interpret events. And if you don't have a hippocampus helping you interpret things well, you come up with a whole bunch of erroneous um, and false beliefs and distorted views. And I had a lot of distorted views of myself, of other people, even of God, as a result of how I was wounded. And the hippocampus is also involved in memory, right? Very importantly. And and so if it's if the hippocampus is underdeveloped, then that also can lead to problems in how I, it is that I remember. And this is why kids sometimes when they're describing a memory, don't do so very accurately, right? It can be sort of a compil- compilation of some things that I hold a memory of, but other things that I've heard something about and why we have to be so careful with suggestion because it's open to suggestion until it's more fully developed right? mm-hmm. and can be uh, remembered in more detail, right? Right. Yeah. yeah and uh, no, Sorry, I was just going to clarify too. I, I love the way you're framing that and, and super helpful. Would it be fair to say then that wounds of withholding are kind of like neglect wounds of help me aggression aggression is like abuse right so it's, yep. it's sort of like what i didn't get well you said this it's what i didn't get that i needed and what i did get that i definitely didn't need so like abuse and neglect and that's really interesting too because it's abuse is usually a little more obvious than neglect right, right. and yep. yet the research would say that abuse that in many cases neglect is more damaging than abuse is because it's harder to make sense of right and, and that's yep. how we You'll get to this in a minute, but that's how we work through our wounds is by making different sense of them. Yep. And and some people struggle uh, with the idea of, of the word neglect. Like, you know, my parents didn't wake up and decide, let's have kids and let's neglect them. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't a conscious choice. And if we had a really long time, I could tell you the story of my parents um, because they were both raised in war trauma during World War II in the Netherlands when Germany invaded and occupied them. And so then they brought that into their marriage and into their parenting. And so as a result of that, there is withholding for, to me, not intentional. Like there's, and one thing that, you know, I try to really, you know, help uh, my clients understand is there's no blame and shame. Um, Blaming our parents or blaming ourselves or blaming our spouse never helps. All that does is turn you into a victim anyway. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a misconception of counseling. And I'm glad you're saying that for our listeners too, that that the whole point of this thing, especially if you're here already, right? The point of this isn't to figure out whether I blame mom or dad, because all that does is turn you into a victim and and there's no real hope in that. Right. right? We're just, we're just trying to get an accurate description of what went on so I can understand Um, and then I can heal from it. I don't know what the medicine is if I don't understand the diagnosis, right? We don't just start throwing stuff. And that's an important thing to understand about the work that we do too. We don't just start throwing good advice at things, right? We spend a lot of time paying attention. We snuck a few shout outs in here. Here's one more to my mechanic. One of the reasons I use my mechanic, the mechanic that I do, I won't use his name publicly. You may not want me to. Um, but one time when I took my vehicle in and said it was making a weird noise, cause I know about zero about all things mechanical. He literally went into the, into the mechanic place. That's how much I know, like a <laughs> shop, right? A shop. And he, and he came out with a, st- <laughs> none of us know either. He came out with a stethoscope. He literally leaned into the, the hood of my car and used a stethoscope to locate what the problem was. And he said to me, and without realizing I would reference this in a podcast someday, he said to me, I had a hunch of what it might have, to be, what it might have been, but until I listened really carefully, I couldn't be sure. And I can't now remember whether it was the thing he thought it was or the other thing, but we have to diagnose and assess correctly. And sometimes I think of that when we're doing this inventory, when we're asking people to tell their story and when as counselors, we are serving in that role of objective listener outside of the pain, but leaning into it, right? Outside of the pain meanings, we don't have to react to it and get sucked into it, uh, but into it closely enough to hear and to understand what we're doing when we're doing that is understanding what is the exact nature of that which happened within your story that was some sort of that that involves some sort of wound because until we know that we can't understand what you're looking for i love how you tied those two by the way of of how i'm going to stick with the short versions neglect can lead to abuse Mm -hmm. right what it is that i don't get the wound of withholding can turn into actually or can set me up for 
a wound of aggression because I'm still, I still need the thing that I needed in the first place now, because I didn't, I'm just going to the wrong place to look for it. Right. And often that's where, um, something, something terrible can happen. Right. Yep. Uh, and so we need to understand that we need to understand what that is all about because news flash, right. When I then enter the office of a counselor 20 years later or whatever, I still need it. Mm -hmm. I still need it. And I'm probably still looking for it. And I might even be looking for it in inappropriate ways that lead me continually empty and, and withheld from. Yep. And, and, um, you use the word setup and that's the exact word we use when we describe, uh, working with victims of sexual abuse is, or, you know, it usually doesn't start with the actual act of something sexual. There's usually grooming being done by the abuser, but before the grooming is the setup and we need to understand the setup. And, and for most people, when they discover the setup happens within their family, that's actually even more devastating to them than the actual abuse, because it's like, what? You know, especially in the, in church world, you know, like so many people that, that, to tell me, oh yeah, my, my child was, was great. I was raised in the church and everything was great. And, and you Maybe. Know, to, to, to quote uh, uh, the, the Christian psychiatrist and author, Kurt Thompson, he says, whenever he hears that, that's code word for my life sucked. Hmm. Um, because, you know, when, when we're really pressing this narrative, like, oh yeah, everything was great. You know, I went to Christian school, went to Christian church, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, okay, what happened here? Um, and, and, and so for me, I, I did go to Christian school. I was raised in the church. I did have Christian parents. And some really tragic things happened to me, um, and so we need to to understand that. So, and and, and for, for me, as somebody who was traumatized early on in life, and I didn't have a proper hippocampus helping me inter interpret it, um, the 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 messages I gave myself were: there's something wrong with me. I am at fault. I did this. If anyone else knows about this, they will reject me. So I can't tell anyone. So I have to hide this. I got to protect myself. Um, I got to keep everyone at arm's length because if they really know me, they, if they really know what was going on in my life, then they would reject me. So the, these are all false beliefs, but, but they, they carried with me throughout my whole adult life. I was married 19 years before I told my wife about my sexual abuse. Um, so yeah, I, I became very adept at, at deception, at hiding, um, because I was afraid of of the outcomes. And, but I, you know, again, you know, I'm, I'm 10 years old, and I'm having to make sense of something, and I don't have a fully formed hippocampus or, or cortex, and I'm also not bringing it to an adult who does have a mature cortex and hippocampus who can help me make sense of it. That's what I really should have done, but I didn't. Instead, I just want to amplify that. Instead, you also didn't just sit there, right? You, you adapted. You figured out what to do instead. This is one of the reasons I love working with people um, as adults after they have uh, been carrying some response to trauma earlier in their life because they're fighters, right? They're survivors. They, f they have, though, figured out a way. You, f you made a way. You figured mm -hmm. it out. You then came to a place where you realized it wasn't working so well. Right. And that's why yeah. it's hard for some people to let go of those behaviors as well, because sometimes when when you're being asked to let go of a specific behavior because it's harming you in the present, you may not want to because it actually saved you in the past. And I want to latch on to something that you guys have both been kind of saying, like trying to put myself in the shoes of someone listening to this. And maybe they've not heard of this concept before. Or they've not looked at their past in this way. If you are trying to, for lack of a better word, diagnose some trauma what are some symptoms that people can look into in themselves and in their stories to think, well, maybe I do have some stuff that I really need to process that I've never thought about. Like, what does it look like for someone to be carrying this trauma of this wounding with them as they're going through their adulthood? I might uh, come back to the one you just said there, Brian, because I think it's important, right? We'll call it the Shakespearean axiom, right? Me think she doth protest too much. And to clarify what you were saying, you weren't saying that if someone reports having a happy childhood, it means that necessarily something awful happened. To make sure that our listeners understood that, if someone is going out of their way to explain how idyllic everything must have been, there might be a chance that they're compensating or hiding mm -hmm. something yeah. beneath that in the story. Right. So yep. it's a hard thing to catch yourself doing, but taking that honest inventory, right? No childhood was perfect because mm -hmm. our world is not perfect. So if you find yourself saying your childhood was perfect, could you at least start by saying, well, were there some parts of my childhood that were less than perfect? 
It doesn't mean it has to be that I was severely neglected or that I was sexually abused or many of the things that I, that I often think of and that we're sharing in our stories here. But it might be even just to the first way you frame that, Brian, was there something that I needed more of than I got? That's a pretty mm-hmm. honest question. Yeah. And I, I think if, we, if anybody answered that honestly, they would have to say, well, sure, of course. We, we're broken people living in a broken world, surrounded by other broken people, including my own, uh, you know, my own parents. I have to say this is humbling as a, as a parent, right, to sit here because I know my, parent, my children will have to answer this someday. They'll have to explore. I, we start to have some conversations already about there were things that you probably needed from me and didn't get. Uh, there were things that you probably got from me that you definitely didn't need, right? Mm-hmm. Our, our yeah. poor oldest children, especially. We're the least mature <laughs> because mm-hmm. we're the youngest as we're raising them. And then they help mature us some, right? So they truly do kind of pave a way for us younger kids to come float in a little bit. Um, but there's a lot that happens there. And can we just take an inventory of that, mm-hmm. right? Can, are we just willing to, to take a look at that and name it for what it is and use it um, as I hope to do when I have these conversations with my own children Use it as an opportunity to point them to the true and perfect father. Yeah. And like to give a little example of, of my life as I was working through, I've mentioned I've got this father wound stuff that I'm working with. So I have a younger sister and a younger brother, and all three of us have a really unhealthy relationship with food, specifically fast food. And we were hanging out a couple of years ago, kind of, it just kind of came up as we were spending some time together. And we came to the realization, like our father was not a very nurturing father to us. Like he was more concerned with being our friend because he knew his problems would hit the fan at some point. He wants to pick aside. But the only time that my dad ever fed us as kids, he never made us dinner, but he would bring us fast food. Like if he got in a fight with mom, he'd show up with Wendy's and give us Wendy's and kick us into the basement. Like what are some other examples of behavior like that? Where like maybe you're carrying this into adult and you can realize, oh my gosh, that's a re- that's because of something that happened to me when I was a kid. What are some other examples of behavior and, and symptoms like that? Uh, one behavior is, um, can I be honest about whether or not I'm hiding something? Like, is there something that I really don't want my best friend or my spouse to know about, about me? Yeah. And and the, and I'm not saying like you got to go tell them immediately, but like, what am I hiding? So like, self-assessment yeah, first. Can self, I do that? Like, like, can I be honest to say I'm hiding something? And and what is it? And and why might I be hiding it? Uh, what am I afraid of? Um, so that, so so that's a behavior is is uh, hiding self-protection. Um, the, the, then there are other you know dysfunctional behaviors like you know, do you get argumentative easily? Do you use logic to power up over people? You know, you you, you mentioned food. Um, are there other addictive things that we turn to, uh, whether it's work or reading, um, you know, the, the, the really dis- destructive ones like sex, drugs, and alcohol. Um, but work can really destroy uh, relationships with self and with others. Um, so, yeah, starting to look at, at those kinds of things. What are my sleep patterns? Why am I struggling to sleep? Um, or why do I sleep so much? Um, so that those are, are some things that we can start looking at to go, hmm, maybe there's something under that. And, and so a posture that I try to, to teach others, which I've only been doing for the last you know, five, six years, is be curious instead of critical. Um, most of my life is critical, critical towards myself, critical towards pretty much everyone else, um, including my, my wife and kids. And, you know, talk about something that doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work. Uh, don't be critical. Um, but you know, so if we're not going to be critical, what do we do instead? Like, can we be curious? Can we be curious about these things to say, Hmm, where do these come from? And, and I might not be able to stop some of these behaviors today or this week. Um, but that maybe not, might not be the goal. It might be, you know, like, can I grow an awareness to understand where these things are coming from? Yeah. Am I willing to just observe for now, right? Mm -hmm. Just pay attention. Here's a fun one. I don't recommend that anyone sets this experiment up proactively, but next time you hit your thumb with a hammer (laughs) or next time you hit your head on something, what word comes out of your mouth? Not a good one. Not a good one. And we can't, Brian, don't do it. We, we, we won't repeat them, uh, on the WCSG podcast here. Uh, but I would, I would challenge anyone to pay attention to what happens in some scenario like that. And whether or not, there may not be, 
But whether or not there may be some significance of all the words that you might say, my hunch is you probably say one consistently. And what does that one word you say consistently say about what you might be stuck on, right? Yeah, and, and that's an example of a 10 and 2 reaction. And so that, that. that would be another way of paying attention is, do I have level 10 reactions to something that really is a level 2? Um, so yeah, I bump my head. Unless you get a concussion and you have to go to the hospital, it's a level 2. But if I'm having an explosive response immediately and those words are coming out that maybe you don't use all the time, um, that's a level 10. So why am I having a level 10 reaction to a level two situation? And because self-awareness is a casualty of that type of behavior, I will also add this. This might be a more dangerous experiment than hitting your own thumb with a hammer. Ask a person who spends a lot of time with you, preferably one that loves you and is willing to be honest, how they experience you, right? Because that's the problem. If I'm walking around reacting to everything around me, I'm probably not utilizing the part of the brain that might stop and slow down and, and even recognize that that's happening, much less try to assess where it's coming from and what it's all about. So ask somebody nearby, right? Ask a friend, phone a friend, and just say to a spouse or a dear friend, maybe a pastor, this is a big thing that we do in counseling, uh, is to assess what it is that's happening in the room. How is it that you experience me? What, what do you see when I'm stressed out? One of my favorite t-shirts that I wish I would have bought um, simply said, I'm sorry for what I said when I was backing up the camper, <laughs> <laughs> right? When I'm under that kind of stress and everyone's watching and, and I just want it to happen. What, what do I say? What do I say to myself? What do I say to somebody else? And then stick with it for a while. What, what's that about? I bet it's not random. I bet it's not random. So asking someone else to, to speak into that part of your life can be really helpful. Which if if there's something going on that you don't want to ask other people, how do you experience me? That could be another self-diagnostic. Well, why don't I want that information? Back what am I afraid hiding, of? Right? Yep, because yeah. then I'm probably hiding something. Um, two typical behaviors uh, that I see in people are self-justify and blame others. Um, so what am I justifying myself on? What am I blaming others for? Um, if I'm engaged in those kinds of behaviors, there's probably something beneath the surface and, and what is beneath the surface. And, and so um, uh, j just to be clear, uh, the word trauma is not an English word. It's a Greek word. It's in the New Testament in Greek. Um, the English equivalent of, of trauma is wound. And so we're, we're talking about wounds, um, but sometimes we think, you know, trauma is like something like way over the top or something like that. Uh, but, but a trauma is, is a wound. And so I've, I've wounded myself when I hit my thumb with the hammer. But that, is, that is a trauma. Uh, you stub your toe. That is a trauma. Um, but a lot of other things are traumas as well. Um, they wound us and they leave some kind of imprint. Now, they all leave different imprints. And especially the, you know... Um, how soon I get help and support or resourcing in that moment makes all the difference in the world for how we experience a, a trauma or a wounding event. Um, so for me, um, I hid and buried my trauma for over 30 years. So that left a really indelible imprint and created a whole lot of patterns in me that were, were not healthy at all. Um, if I'd gotten help right away, like within a week or two, or even within a year, um, that r could have really changed the whole trajectory of my life. Now, I want to ask a question related to that. Why is it so important to do this work and like find these traumas? And why is it so important to get that help? Like what happens to you when you ha let a trauma like that sit dormant inside of you for years and years and years? Like why is it so important to do this work? Well, um, back to my story. So, you know, um, my, I have a mental framework now that says I'm defected. I'm fundamentally flawed. I'm the problem. People will reject me. If people know what's going on, they'll hate me. So that, that belief leads into certain amounts of disruptive emotion. Um, and, and because it started so early in my life, I wasn't aware that I was experiencing a certain emotional response. Um, and it's called chronic anxiety. So for me, I, chronic anxiety started me when I was like five or eight years old. Um, I didn't know it because I just, that's what you're raised with. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't know it until I was in my mid forties. Um, and, and it was so, just the template you had. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. And doesn't everybody live this way? <laughs> right. Well, no, they, they actually don't. Um, and so there, there, there's chronic anxiety. Um, for me, anger responses 
were, were there, um, easily irritated, aggravated, a lot of fear. Uh, so so the, those are the emotional things going on inside of me. And, and that drives my behaviors. Um, so because I'm feeling anxious, um, I, I, I felt like I had to power up and prove myself. So I became very academically aware. You know, I always ran A's, um, you know, like I, I was always top of the class, a valedictorian for my master's, like all, all that kind of stuff um, because I had to prove myself. Um, and then, you know, I get into pastoring and I have to perform to prove myself. So that, that became a whole lot of behavioral sorts of things. Um, so then if, if somebody said, hey, I have a different understanding or idea or desire or whatever, it, it became justify self, blame the other. So, so you're talking on the last episode about conflict. Um, it, for me, it was always win-lose. Like I have to win and I'll do whatever it takes to win and, and you will lose. Um, and, and, and that was, was part of a belief was because if I, if I admit that I might be wrong, I've just given you evidence that I am wrong and I've given you evidence to reject me. So just all kinds of crazy thinking going on, and that leads to, to behaviors. Um, and, and this also affects our bodies. Um, our bodies can only handle this much turmoil within us for so long, and then certain systems just start saying, hey, we're, we're going to take a break. Um, and so what, eight, eight years ago, my digestive system decided to take a break. Uh, because it was, it, it couldn't handle all this turmoil. It couldn't handle carrying this amount of anxiety anymore. So my digestive system takes a break. So um, I go to the doctor, and you know he says, "Well, let's try this." And so I try that, and we try a few of the different things. Well, I'm stumped. Let's send you to a gastroenterologist. So I go to the to the specialist. I get a colonoscopy, upper GI endoscopy, um, doing all these tests, and he's like. You, all the tests say your body is, is healthy and functioning fine. And I'm like, well, I, I'll, I'll tell you for fact, <laughs> it, it, it isn't. I beg and, to differ. And then I even, I even said to him, I, said, I, I looked him in the eye and I said, you know, I, I understand stress can, can have an impact on, on our digestive system. And, and I said, like, could that be what's going on? And, and, and he, I know this is a podcast, so you can't see me, but he, he kind of did this once over looking at me like, hmm, you know, <laughs> you don't look like a guy who's stressed out to me. And, and so he was stumped and said, I'm not stressed out. Uh, and he's like, well, we could send you to the Mayo Clinic. And I'm like, well, I don't want to go to the Mayo Clinic. Um, and maybe if this medical pathway isn't working, or well, if the medical pathway is revealing my body is functioning properly, um, maybe I need to look at some other aspect. And so that's when my wife and I went to see some counselors eight years ago. And that's when I first started talking about my sexual abuse. Um, and so the, the stress, the anxiety of that started to come out and it started moving through my body, moving out of my body. And then that, the, my digestive system also healed. So the imprint of, of unprocessed, unhealed, unaddressed uh, wounds no matter what kind of wound it is, can have an effect on so many different aspects of our being, body, mind, soul. Yeah. I think it's so important what you're saying there, Brian, in, in terms of even back to your question, Zach, the one thing that can't happen in response to trauma is nothing. And this would maybe be one of the ways we make us make sense of the difference between something uncomfortable or, or hurtful and, and a wound or a trauma, right? Which is, a wound or a trauma are significant enough that they, they require us to alter course. And if we don't have the opportunity, the resources, the invitation, uh, we don't recognize it. It's not recognized in us that something needs attention and we can find that attention in a proactive and a healthy way, including professional help. We will do something else. And, and so as you're talking about that, Brian, right, the, the one thing you weren't going to do is just sit down on all that trauma and have nothing be different. Because what you're confronted with isn't just, and this is an important thing always to talk about when we talk about trauma as well, it's not just about the thing that happened, it's about the sense we make of the thing that happened, right? So I might tolerate being harmed in a relationship, but what I can't tolerate is the belief because of that, that I'm weak or that, that I'm defective or there's something wrong with me. That is existentially... Uh, so profound that we can't just sit in it. We must do something. And this, this too is some of the fascinating thing about, about being willing to be curious and explore people's stories and look into this with curiosity, but without criticism. 
you, I'm going to call you Brian on something you just said a minute ago. I don't think you realized you said it when you were talking about some of the ways that you were making sense of this, you said, and all these crazy ways of thinking. Well, as I'm sitting here listening to your story, I'm thinking that's not crazy at all. Actually, first of all, if I don't have a fully developed prefrontal cortex and something awful happens to me, especially if it involves power and power is taken from me, what else would make sense to me, but that I'm defective, right? Mm -hmm. You don't have a, 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 you don't have enough capacity to abstract, to sit all the way outside of that, which you can do later. And and this is where our work comes in to help people reassess and re-understand what happens to them. You you can't step all the way back and talk about human suffering in the world and the, the depravity of the person who harmed you and what you had been neglected of that set you up. You couldn't have done all that, right? First yeah. of all, you got to move a lot quicker than that, right? And these systems that kick in are designed for efficiency, not for accuracy. And so you jump on the first thing smoking, right? You yeah. grab the first exclamation, exclam- explanation, that makes any sense to you. And to a kid who just had something awful happen to them, the idea that they are weak isn't such a crazy idea, actually. Mm-hmm. And then you hold on to it and you continue and you build all these systems around it. And, and this is what I hear in your story. And so, yes, you come to a point where you could step back and say that's crazy. Or if someone encounters you, they might look at some of these behaviors and, doesn't, and say it doesn't make sense. But actually, if you unpack your story, it makes all the sense in the world because you had to do something. You had to do something and that something again works until it doesn't work. It works just enough to get you out of the situation because it's expedient, but then it comes to a place where it stops working because it might even cause trouble. And that's when other systems start shutting down such an important thing. So before we move on, I want to address one group of people that are listening right now. Um, and this is amazing that you guys are listening right now. We actually have a lot of high schoolers that listen to this podcast awesome. based on the questions that we've received. Welcome, high schoolers. Yeah, so thank yes. you so much for, for listening and spending time with us. And we, we've talked a lot this episode about kind of in adulthood, looking back at things that happened to us when we were kids. Mm-hmm. Let's talk to these teenagers that are listening to us right now. Like, what are some things you can do, you can look for to be proactive in maybe if you're in a situation of of abuse and neglect and you're 15 years old, you can't go get counseling on your own. But like, what are some things to look out for and some ways that you can kind of process the things that might be happening to you as you work towards adulthood? So you don't have to sit on this trauma for 30 years. You don't have to bury it down. Um, What are some things some kids in this age can do? I'll go super unscientific first, because I think uh, to some extent, we should be able to just trust our intuition, right? So I'm just going to go with like discernment. Like if at a gut level, I have some understanding that I needed something and didn't get enough of it, or probably easier to see yet would be, I have an understanding that something happened that shouldn't have happened, right? Or maybe some relationship exists or some pattern of things is such in my life that it's causing me harm. I would argue that, especially by high school, you are developing some capacity to understand that that's already the case. And and really, this is why I'm really excited that high schoolers are listening. They're better at this now than we were then, right? Absolutely. I mean, for some of us, this, Brian, was a really long time ago. But uh, (laughs) but (laughs) high schoolers today are just so much better versed at at, – having these conversations and are so much better equipped and, and have been given so much, they've kind of taken it for themselves, really, the last couple of generations to come through, have taken for themselves more so than in previous um, uh, generations, the right to be able to speak about it. Um, mm-hmm. And and I think that's such a, such a cool thing. So one thing that I would say is just probably trust your gut. Um, that if something feels wrong, at least you don't have to react, you don't have to freak out, you don't have to you know, file a police report, you don't, you don't have to jump to any conclusions, but you should at least start by saying, is there something to that? Is there something to that? And and then inviting God into that conversation and then inviting trusted peers and adults into that conversation would be some next steps. Yeah. And, and, um, if you do have a sense that there's something off, um, and recognizing that as a high schooler, you know, your, your brain isn't going to be fully developed until you're about 25, 26. And, and that is by design. It's okay. You, you don't have to, but you can rely on the, the mature brain of, of a trusted adult. And is there anyone that you have an innate sense that, yeah, I kind of trust this person. And if it's a parent, great. But if it's not, you know, is it a teacher or a counselor at school? Um, you know, somebody at your church, um, 
you know, someone that you can just test the waters with and say, hey, this thing happened and I'm wondering if, you know, like that was appropriate or not. Yeah. Um, and then you're, you're, checking you're, out, right? you're, you're checking it out with, with someone um, as opposed to coming to your own conclusions. Um, because my conclusions as, as a 10-year-old, 12-year-old, 15-year-old, 18-year-old were, were really unhealthy conclusions. Especially if in distress, right? Yeah. Again, especially if I'm if I'm in distress, if I'm in crisis, I don't jump to the healthiest conclusion. I jump to the most expedient conclusion, right? And that's yeah. why bringing someone into your story is so incredibly important and profound. Uh, just, I just want to keep emphasizing what you said there, just to check it out. I don't even have to jump to a conclusion uh, on the verdict of what it was that happened or what should be done about it. Right. And I definitely yep. should be careful of conclusions going on in my brain that, that freak me out that this is now going to be awful and my life is over or something like that. What do you say all the time, Kevin? Be curious. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Just be curious and, and invite somebody into that curiosity and say, before we take a next step, can we just, you just take a peek at this? What's, what's going on here? So speaking of curiosity, if this has been a, a great conversation, um, so much more that we could talk about, and I'm sure you might have some questions based on what you've heard. And uh, every episode we wrap up with a, a Q and a time. So if you have a question that you'd like us to answer, you can submit it a couple ways. You can go to WCSG.org, search for podcasts, click on through rough waters. You'll see a form there. You can also email us your question through rough waters, WCSG.org. Today's question comes from Brianne. Brian says, love your podcast. Thank you, Brian. And uh, this hits home so much. Personally, I have anxiety and I didn't realize it till I was in my mid thirties and had my first panic attack. I'm now a parent to an almost seven year old boy and a four year old girl. My seven year old has behavior issues at home and now we're seeing some of it as school as well, but not as severe as we see at home. So how do you tell if it's anxiety or if it's sensory issues or do they go hand in hand? Yeah, I guess um, my initial response is similar to the, the the way we started with the Bible verse is uh, what what's going on in Brienne? Um, you know, she acknowledges her anxiety, having a panic attack. Um, you know, what sort of work has she done to face that? You know, where is where is that coming from? Because it's coming from somewhere. And so, can we be curious and ask? You know, what happened there? Um, and, and uh, our, our kids, um, their autonomic nervous system is attuned to our adult autonomic nervous systems. And if my autonomic nervous system is in a state of anxiety, my kids are feeling that. And so then they're going to start acting out of their anxiety. So, um, yeah, I don't know Brienne at all. Uh, I don't know what she has or hasn't done. But I, I, first of all, get curious on that. In what ways has she experienced release from her anxiety? Um, has she probed that? Um, if not, maybe, maybe look at that. Um, and then in terms of the, the child, like, yeah, is it anxiety or, um, or, you know, the, the, there's a variety of different things that we can look at, you know, biological things, psychological things, medical things, but also spiritual things, um, social things, you know, we, w- we want to look at a, a variety of different things to, to rule out certain things to, so that we can hone in on, yes, you know, let, let, let's look at this pathway for, for the child. That's really good. Um, I, I would just start in a similar place. Remember, I, first of all, I appreciate Brianne that you're, uh, you're noticing this. You're not, mm-hmm. you're not ignoring Absolutely. these behaviors, yep. right? You're saying something really important, maybe even more so than you realize, which is something is going on. We just don't know exactly what's going on. So the fact that there are behavioral issues says something is going on. So approach that with grace towards yourself and towards absolutely. your son, uh, towards compassion, school, towards, yep. self-compassion, lots of self-compassion. Yep, absolutely. And yet again, that curiosity and, and then be willing to proceed. So taking a, a look first at yourself, like Brian says, is there anything within me or the way I'm conducting the household, the way I'm responding, um, that might be a part of the equation, uh, of why my son is, is, um, trying to communicate with something, uh, something right here. Uh, again, cause that's, that's what we know. Our, our kids can't just say, Hey mommy, here's exactly what's going on, especially if it's at a more profound level. Right. Mm-hmm. But their behavior is how they communicate. And so you're right to be, uh, monitoring the behavior as a way of him communicating that something's not right. We just don't know exactly what that is. And again, a good, intervention always requires first and, and often depends on a really good diagnosis. So you've got some hunches here. I would also trust your mom sense, um, a little stronger than Spidey sense that maybe he is experiencing some anxiety either in response to what's going on in the environment or, um, there's a good chance that, uh, he's, he's, 
predisposed maybe in the same way that you were, um, to being a more anxious person like height and eye color and shoe size and every other thing that we take a look at anxiety. That's is something that's distributed unequally. It's, and, and maybe he's just a little more prone to anxiety and there's ways that you can check that out. I also love that you're asking about sensory issues. That's worth at least ruling out, if not looking into further. Um, it's not something we can do here, of course, <laughs> over the air, uh, but there, there are some uh, great resources in town. Um, I, I would actually encourage, um, this is this is not a specific area of expertise for her, for us at West Michigan Wellness Group, but I would invite you, if you really feel stuck, to just give us a call. We'd love to help, and maybe we could point you in the right direction of somebody who could look into that further. There's a reason you're asking, and it might, it might be worth looking into to see um, if there is some sort of a, a sensitivity issue that needs help. Um, and, and then just stay on that path. Just continue looking at it until you can chase it down and, and hopefully find a healthy response. Yeah, and and just what, oh. to be really clear, Brianne, there's no blame here. Yeah. You know, nobody's in trouble. Nobody did something wrong. We're just trying to get curious to understand what's going on in you as a, as a mom and also in your child. Um, maybe there's something going on at the school that's that's um, dysregulating to your son and, and he's nervous about that and anxious about that. So, you know, um, is he being bullied? Um, you know, we, we, we I, I don't know, but maybe he knows. Um, so those kinds of things can all contribute. And so uh, being able to be curious with, with your son as well to ask him some questions about what, he, what he's experiencing at school or, where, or on the playground or, or wherever, wherever he is, um, because anxiety always comes from somewhere. And it, it's, it's um, communicating something to us that something is off, something's not quite right, and we need to pay attention. And you're a good mom for noticing it Absolutely. and for following up, right? Yeah. For being willing to ask that question and be brave enough to, yep. to put yourself Absolutely. out there and ask. That's great. Good stuff, guys. Thank you so much for uh, joining us for episode eight of Through Rough Waters. Uh, join us again in two weeks as we continue this series on conflict. We're going to dive a little bit deeper on the relationship between grown children and their parents and talk about the importance of being intentional about developing a family culture and traditions. I want to say a big thank you to Brian and Kevin from West Michigan Wellness Group for joining us today. Kevin, if someone's listening and they decided it's time for me to reach out, it's time for me to get some professional help, how do they connect with you guys at West Michigan Wellness Group? Yeah, please do look us up. Uh, we can be found online at uh, www.westmichiganwellnessgroup.com. You can email us at info at westmichiganwellnessgroup.com. You can give us a call on the phone, 616-600-1187. That's 600-1187. Um, we're on social media. Anyway, you can find us. Please reach out and we will do our best to uh, pick up the lead and follow up and get you where you need to be. Cool. Thanks, Kevin. Brian, would you wrap up this episode in prayer for us? Certainly. Oh, Lord our God, uh, you are the creator, and you have created our, our bodies, minds, souls to be an integrated whole, uh, to be at a place of shalom with you. Uh, and many of us have not experienced that, and we need your help and your healing and your restoration. Um, you know the people who have experienced some kind of wounding, um, whether it's in their family or outside their family or wherever it might be. And they are needing you to come alongside of them and heal their broken heart. And so we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would indeed be that healer. Um, and we, we pray for those people who are considering making a step to, to talk to someone. Um, whatever it takes, O Holy Spirit, we ask that you would inspire them with, with the courage and peace that they need to take that step to get some help. Um, we thank you that you do not withhold, but you are always giving. You're a generous and gracious God, and you're ready to, to fill us full with your peace, your shalom. Uh, so we seek you as the God who heals, restores, and redeems all things. In your name we pray. Amen.